Good morning, everyone. Today I'm going to re be reading from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and Genesis 2, 15. Then God said, Let us make a man, someone like ourselves, to be the master of all life upon the earth, and in the skies, and in the seas. So God made man like his maker, like God did God make man. Man and maid did he make them. And God blessed them and told them, Multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it. You are the masters of fish and birds and all the animals. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden as its gardener, to tend and care for it. Good morning, everyone. When I was a kid, sometimes we would get toys in our cereal boxes. One of them was a set of cardboard glasses with red lenses. There would be a hidden message on the back of the cereal box written in light blue and it was covered in a red scramble. So we would need to look through the red lens so we would see the secret message clearly. These red lenses let us see through the red jumble to see the decoded words written in blue underneath. So this one here says, be mind Valentine. Those cereal boxes came with red lens glasses but as a kid, I also owned a set of glasses that had one red lens and one blue lens. When you look through the red lens, same thing as before, of course, but then when you look through the blue lens, the blue words disappeared, leaving only the red scramble. In other words, when I used the lens that wasn't designed for decoding the message, I wasn't able to see the message. Similarly, when we read the Bible without the lens designed for it, we won't be able to see the message God put there for us. We'll see the words, of course, but we won't get the message the text is giving us. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened to use the lens that God, that reveals God to us. Today, we're going to look at a passage in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians using two different lenses. We're going to look at how the passage answers the central question, why did God send Jesus? Or to put it another way, what is God's purpose in Jesus? So let us take our two lenses and travel over to Ephesians 1. First, let's read Ephesians 1 to see what God has done for us in Jesus. God chose us. God predestined us. God made his will known to us. God chose and predestined us again. God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. God gives us wisdom and revelation. God enlightens us. Let's take a moment to marvel at what God has done for us in Jesus. God sent Jesus to show love for us in all these ways. With that in view, what's our response? Well, naturally we share that news with others so they can experience God's love for them like we experience God's love for us. This is the for us lens. Now that's great and that's true, but it's incomplete in itself. Let's take a moment and think about this. God created a vast universe with billions of galaxies and a earth in that universe with incredible diversity in the land and sea and sky and all the creatures. And yet as amazing as it is, when we make God's ultimate purpose us, we're being egregiously self-centered, short-sighted, destructive.
It's called incurvatus ensei, to use a Latin phrase. It means humanity turned inward. When we make God's ultimate purpose us, we will even use the word of God to make God's reason for existence us. If we believe that God's reason for sending Jesus is primarily about us, we've made God in our image. We've made a mute idol that exists to serve us. If God ultimately sent Jesus to show love for us, then we will love in a way that ends with us. But creation, the earth, the universe is so much bigger than us, and God's purpose is much bigger than us. Doesn't God care about the rest of humanity, the rest of the world? We're just us select few. It's time to add another lens. So let's take another look at Ephesians 1. The first lens was the for us lens, and it's a dangerous lens by itself. The second lens is called to be, the to be lens. And now we'll see that Paul didn't write Ephesians to end at for us, but to continue with to be. Let's look at these same for us statements and see where they lead. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. He made known to us the mystery of his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We were chosen in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So now, instead of summarizing what God did for us like we did before, let's summarize those red statements, the purpose God did those things for. To summarize, to, to use those red statements again, God did all those things for us in order that we would be holy and blameless, praise his glorious grace, bring unity in heaven and earth, praise his glory, to know him better, and know our hope. It looks like God's ultimate goal is for God's people to be holy, to know God, to know our hope, in order that we live in a way that unifies heaven and earth. God showing love to us is not God's ultimate goal. Now that may sound like a shocker, or scandalous, or even blasphemous. I'll say it again. God loving you is not God's ultimate goal. God loves us in order that God's love will flow through us to the whole world. That doesn't take away from God's love. It shows how great his love is. If God's love ended with you, that would be disaster. Thankfully, God pours out love to us, to fill us, to go through us. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, out of them will flow rivers of living water, not just into them, out of them. To put it simply, if God ultimately sent Jesus to show love for us, then we will love in a way that ends with us. If God ultimately sent Jesus to show love to us, for all creation, then we will love in a way that continues through us to love all creation. 
Now let's go back to those purpose statements. What does it mean to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ? What does that look like? Well, the New Testament describes heaven not as a location you can go, but as the ever-present dimension where God works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In the future, when God fully brings heaven and earth together, everything will work in conformity with the purpose of his will. But in the present, the way we unite with God's purpose is to bring ourselves in conformity with the purpose of his will. To live in accordance with the Lord's prayer, we are to operate on earth as God operates in heaven. That involves restoring our relationships with ourselves, to know who we are, to do good where we are, restoring our relationships with other people, to love them as God loves them. It also means restoring our relationships with God's creatures, to treat them with respect as fellow created beings, to restore our relationships with the land, which grows the plants that feed the world. So the systems that govern the world, like the economy and politics, they're not worldly concerns beneath or apart from heavenly concerns, but these systems are heavenly concerns because they are the means through which God's justice can operate on earth as it does in heaven. Now, these stewardship passages that we read earlier from Genesis 1 and 2, they're not just nice ideas or God's first commands that are later superseded by the gospel. They're our essential vocation restored by the gospel. The gospel restores us to our vocation to fully embody God's royal and priestly purpose for us to the rest of the world. Wendell Berry wrote, the standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. He noticed that a for us gospel not only ignores the rest of creation, but exploits it for whoever the us is. What happens when Christians stop at a for us gospel? I'll give you an example. The man who founded Tyson Foods in 1935 was a born-again, Bible-believing Christian. When his grandson became CEO, he hired thousands of chaplains to counsel the employees. So far, so good. Now, Tyson Foods is the second largest meat processor in the U.S., and it reported $3 billion in profits at the end of 2018. Tyson is also the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the global food industry. In 2016, Tyson employees reported wearing diapers because they couldn't get enough bathroom breaks. In 2019, wastewater from a Tyson plant in Alabama killed 175,000 fish. In 2020, Tyson plants did not implement COVID safety measures even after outbreaks. Employees were incentivized with money to go to work even when they didn't want to go to work because of COVID. Supervisors avoided walking on the plant floor. Soon, seven plant managers were fired for betting on how many employees would get sick from COVID. The Tyson leadership, of course, condemned this behavior, but this is, what, this is the behavior that naturally results from a gospel that ends in for us. A gospel that ends in us thinks it can separate spirituality from people, animals, and the world. It wants to exploit and escape rather than tend to the world that we live in. 
If we really want a gospel that's for us in order to be for the world, we need to see that spiritual health is inextricable to long work hours and chronic pain, low wages. What good is it, even as a Christian-led company, to profit $3 billion a year and lose your soul? Once again, the standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. If we believe that we are the end goal, then we will think that the most loving thing to do for others is to get them to believe the same thing we do so they get the same blessings we have. But if we believe that God uniting heaven and earth is the end goal, then the most loving thing we do for others is to invite them to live as blessed people in order to bless the world. With this in mind, let's revisit what may be the most well-known passage in Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When we make the end purpose of God's master plan us, we interpret God so loved the world as, well, not the whole world, just humanity, and not all of humanity, just people who believe in Jesus, and not all people who believe in Jesus, but just people who believe in Jesus like us. We end up interpreting the word world, which is the Greek word cosmos, to mean people like me. God loves people like me. By the world, it really just means us. But does God only love us? No, God loves the world. If we read this passage as written, for God so loved the world, then we will recognize that God saves us in order to join him in loving the world. Eternal life, the heavenly life, the ever-present now life is us restored to who God made us to be now. People who so love the world like God so loves the world. Now again, as we read earlier, we see in Genesis 1, the passage calls us to rule as God rules. Notice the word and how it keeps reappearing. Genesis 2 calls us to serve the world as God serves the world. These Hebrew words are paired together when talking about the priestly duties as well. So humans are described as kings in Genesis 1 and priests in Genesis 2. It's no wonder then that God calls his people a kingdom of priests. So as rulers, let's take the lead where we are. And as priests, let's serve the world where we are. Let's be that kingdom of priests who live as people who love the world as God loves the world. Before you go, I would be remiss if I gave a sermon on how it's our mission to be royal priests to the whole world without giving any practical ways to do so. Again, earlier we recalled that Wendell Berry wrote, the standard of the exploiter is efficiency the standard of the nurturer is care. I'm going to assume you already know some individual ways to reduce waste and fossil fuel energy, but if you know that just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions, then we'll recognize that we need to do more than just individual action. These big companies can put the focus on individual actions to avoid being held accountable.
The best way for our voices to be heard is to join one of the many organizations that are already holding these companies and policymakers accountable. So I'll suggest a few, and, and you may have more of your own. Um, I suggest looking into WEACT, Green Faith, Blessed Earth, Evangelical Environmental Network, and locally, Christians Concerned About Climate Change. At the very least, a small but profound action you can do is to sign your name on petitions that further our care for this world as a society. Now, let's close in prayer to the Creator revealed in Genesis and the Redeemer revealed in Jesus. Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in, us, in it. Genesis 1 says that we are rulers to rule as God rules. Genesis 2 calls us to serve the world as God serves the world. Let us therefore honor you as, as, king, as a kingdom of priests, serving the world's people, creatures, and land as people who love the world as much as God, who so loved the world, gave his son to redeem it. We thank you, Father, for your empowering spirit to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, Jesse is going to further discuss Genesis 1 and reflect on how the creation story actually tells us something important about God's character and how he intends to work in the world. Now, let's go forth as those who love the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.